This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Damian Bolwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, Rebuilding Paradise. It's been one year since the campfire tore through Butte County after being sparked by a PG&E power line. More than 11,000 homes were lost on November 8th, 2018, and 85 people died. Reporter Lizzie Johnson and photographer Gabrielle Lurie are here. They've been spending time in paradise in recent weeks, and they're going to talk about the slow rebuilding of that community and the question of whether it should be rebuilt at all. Lizzie and Gabrielle, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Damien. I can't believe that it's been a year since we were responding to the campfire in Butte County. It was a terrible day. I remember, Lizzie, you took off right to the fire. At that point, we didn't know how terrible it was going to be. So many lives lost. Lately, the two of you have been returning to Paradise to see how they're doing after a year. Lizzie, first off, how are they doing? Is there progress so I think the best way to give you a picture of how they're doing is to give you the numbers first. So more than 19,000 structures were destroyed in the campfire. About 11,500 of those were homes. And since then, 14 have been rebuilt. There's a, another 303 building permits in Butte County in Paradise and then 82 more in the unincorporated areas. But it just goes to show that a year really isn't that far when it comes to recovering what was lost. Wow. 14. 14. My goodness. And have you guys been to any of those homes? What what does that look like? I've been to a few of them that are going up. And it's one of those really weird things where it looks remarkably normal. It's just a house rising until you look around and realize that it's one of many houses rising or it's next door to a lot where everything is still on the ground. One thing that we can say is that the people that we've spoken to who want to rebuild are very strong in rebuilding paradise and creating that community that they once had. Yeah, I want to ask you guys later about sort of the debate over whether they should rebuild it all in paradise. Obviously, and we've seen these terrible fires over the last few years in paradise and the surrounding communities more than any. We've had these sort of existential questions. But first, spending time there recently, wh what is it like? Um, how are the people feeling? What does it feel like to be there? You know, the people are really amazingly resilient. Um, we've w witnessed people who have lost partners, um, who have, you know, obviously lost their entire community. And um, they've rebuilt in other places, whether it's actually in parad paradise or, you know, going to school in Chico. They've found that it's the people that they're with um, that bind them together. And so we spent time. Uh, with seniors as they graduated, um, you know, departing what was paradise. But um, can you help me? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I think it's like anything where once you've lost your community, you cling really hard onto what you do have. 
And for the people up there, that is the community. It's the people and everyone is very displaced. But there's this sense of community pride, this paradise strong, particularly as, you know, the rest of the world kind of moves on. Like during the Kid Kennedy fire, a lot of people were like, you know, we're still up here and really hurting too, seeing these other houses burned down. Um, and you end, say they cling to things that are important, like the schools, right? Um, yeah. And Gabby can talk about that too. How many schools have been rebuilt? I know a lot of them were damaged. So there were nine school campuses and about five of them were either completely destroyed or partially destroyed. So they have four working campuses right now and it's going to take time to get those other schools back and running. But children go to school in paradise. Children go to school in paradise. Enrollment is down about 50%, but the kids are still there. And Paradise High School is back. And Paradise High School is back. They were so excited about that. And that's a big part of the community there, you know, going to watch football games and prom. And I think just having a structure of being able to take your kids to school and have them have sports and come back and just like have that sort of normalcy that you once had in the place where you were, not not just at the airport or somewhere else, but actually in Paradise. And so that's one of the ripple effects of a tragedy like the Campfire 2 where You know, right now, school enrollment, like I said, is only down 50 percent, which might seem like a lot. But the school superintendent has said that they expect that to drop even further once this current group of high schoolers graduate. You know, the freshmen, sophomores and juniors, um, not including the seniors who graduated last May, they really want to be with their friends to have people to support them. And in a lot of ways, their parents are holding on to paradise until they can get their kids out of high school and maybe move somewhere else. Yeah. So they want to finish up. Exactly. It's important to them. So you you mentioned a minute ago, uh, Gabrielle, that there was it's like a big construction site in Paradise, and it's hard to picture, but um, but they're rebuilding thousands of homes, or they will. Um, what's that like? I mean, is it just a bunch of cleared lots and and trucks coming and going? Yeah, so there's a lot of trucks coming and going when you when you go into Paradise. You know, sometimes you're hit with a lot of traffic, which seems strange, right? Because there's no one there. There's no one living there. And you're thinking, why is there so much traffic? And well, it's trucks coming in and out, either removing debris or coming, you know, to bring in supplies or to fix poles or whatever it may be. Um, But yeah, there's a steady stream of construction going on, um, which is odd because it's, in my memory, it's sort of overlaid with this place that looked like Mars and was kind of just smoke in the air and ash everywhere. So, um, but yeah, there is a lot of work currently being done. Um, so you can feel that there, but it's, it's this kind of mix of, of both. There's a lot going on and then yet there's also nothing there. There's a lot of progress just to get back to what a lot of people consider to be zero. Like to start from a blank slate, you need to remove all of the debris and downed houses on that slate. So you see all of these trucks, like Gabby was saying, and it doesn't like it's progress. But at the same time, it doesn't always feel like progress because they're just trying to find the starting point. Yeah, it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that it might be what I think you've said 10 years longer just to get back to to a community. Um, It's hard to picture. Lizzie, you wrote about there being tension in some of these communities in California, should they rebuild at all? Was that something that people in paradise thought about? And, you know, how do they go about trying to make sure that they don't rebuild and then another fire comes? They definitely thought about it. And it's 
It's one of those really tricky things where from the outside looking in, it can be very easy to say, no, of course they shouldn't rebuild. Like another fire will come. This is a really fire prone area. It's a town situated on, on a ridge between two chimneys, essentially. But, you know, where where else are these people going to go? There's not that many affordable places left in California. And for them, paradise is home. Maybe their parents were born there, or their grandparents were born there, or they moved there because they wanted to create a life for their children. And they're determined to stay because that is their home. And I do kind of get that, like... Yeah, right. and they own the lots. The lots have value. They probably can't sell them. There's so many. And there's a beauty to the place that that you don't always see through photographs, but it almost looks like a, a small Grand Canyon, some of the like overlooks. And like there's just this magical quality in the air. There's beautiful sunsets. You know, despite the fire, it's still like has this kind of crisp air. And I can see why you would want to raise your kids like 20 minutes outside Chico. And, you know, just with a small, tight-knit community, it just seems kind of perfect. And so town leaders recognize that, but they're also understanding that they need to do something more to get these houses to be more fire resilient. Um, The fact of the matter is, one of the reasons why the fire spread so quickly through Paradise is because the houses, on average, were about 30 years old. So one house caught on fire, and then all of a sudden it caught all of the neighbors on fire, and then the whole block was on fire. So they're hoping they can almost achieve herd immunity in a way um, by making these houses a bit more fire resilient. That means, you know, keeping the wooden fence separated from the house or um, moving the siding up on the house so it's just concrete. And if little fire creeps through the grass, it won't automatically catch the house on fire. Um, There's controversy around this, right? Because it takes money to rebuild a house right and the town council, which is five members, essentially volunteer. They get paid $300 a month, had to balance whether, you know, how safe they could, they could make the community before people couldn't rebuild it all. You have old people, really underinsured people, um, really poor people living up there. And that's another thing. How do you insure a town that burned down? Yeah. Are these people going to be able to get fire insurance? A lot of people before the fire didn't have it, and that's why they're in such bad straits now, right? Yeah, that really remains to be seen, and it's one of the biggest problems up in Butte County right now. In my story, I talked with a woman who lived in Megalia, and a year before the campfire, her insurer reached out and said, hey, you know, we can't offer you coverage anymore. You're in too high of a fire risk area. And her only other option was to pay $938 a month for coverage. And she just took the gamble, and clearly that gamble didn't work. But that's Her home burned down. Her home burned down, and now she can't rebuild and what's she, she doing? Money. She's living in a trailer. On her property. On her property. Wow. All right. I want to keep talking about some of the details of, of how they're trying to rebuild with very few people in town. Um, I also want to ask you, Lizzie, about the last victim who you're writing about who hasn't been identified uh, still one year later. We'll do that right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
I'm Damian Bolwa. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm here with reporter Lizzie Johnson and photographer Gabrielle Lurie. We're talking about the year anniversary of the Camp Fire, uh, the devastating fire in Butte County that killed 85 people. You were talking, Lizzie, about making the town more durable for the next wildfire. Does PG&E have a role in that? Because PG&E has been accused of causing that fire. PG&E has promised to underground all of the power lines in paradise. But as we've seen, just because you underground some some power lines doesn't mean that the town is power safe. The campfire was ignited by a transmission tower many miles east of town. So, you know, it's a start, but it doesn't solve everything. I wonder being hit so hard, whether people in paradise have strong feelings toward PG&E. They've also been hit with some of the outages recently, right? Yeah, they have been hit with some of the outages. Um, and we've, you know, we've talked to a few people that work for P- PG&E and, um, you know, eventually they were kind of embarrassed to continue working for the company that... These are people even, who live nearby? Yeah. Live they, in the area? Yeah, these are people that... They're who they up. themselves lost their house and um, want to rebuild. And in fact, we're doing rebuilding, you know, and, and doing some of the debris cleanup. Um, and they thought to themselves, you know what, I can't keep working for PG&E because they were, they were thought to be um, so involved in the fire. So um, a lot of them have quit or they've been harassed. Um, people's tires have been slashed. They've been – they've gotten death threats. So, um, yeah, PG&E is uh, Of course, these are line heavy. workers who yeah. aren't making the big decisions about the – the electric grid, just like they're not making a decisions about the natural gas pipelines, um, but they're still being sometimes the subject of anger in the community. I think people don't know where to place their anger. And so when they see someone wearing a PG&E hard hat, it's just really easy to direct it to those people, even if they themselves have been affected. They're the ones that have to deal with the big decisions made in glass offices really far away in different, really distant cities. Um, I I wanted to ask you, Lizzie, there's some details in your story about how hard the town was hit. And um, you had a scene out of the dispatch center at the police department in Paradise where they used to have a full police department, a chief, a bunch of dispatchers ran their own emergency service. And now it's like a skeleton of, of itself, right? Yeah. So there's one dispatcher left for the entire town of Paradise. And it's a woman who started after the campfire. She was the first officer to be inducted in the new year. She talks about everyone crying at her induction ceremony because, you know, it's this bittersweet thing where she was the first one joining this new force as everyone else was quitting. The force has lost half of its officers and they're worried they might not be able to patrol the town soon. Maybe for, again, five, ten years just to rebuild this. So what do they do? How do they how do they how do they patrol the town? How do they handle dispatch calls? So the police chief is out handling patrols right now. They've had some state parks officers helping out, and then they've had to um, contract with the Butte County Sheriff's Office to handle nine one one calls. Which also, what are the calls? So <laughs> it's <laughs> so funny talking to this dispatcher. She, you, you see the town kind of come back from this computer screen. She talks about how at first there were lots of calls about looting and about suspicious people. And now it's like property line disputes and debris trucks speeding and stuff like that. Why, or, why property line disputes? 
There's nothing to mark where the property lines are. There are no houses left. There are no fences or outbuildings. People are just trying to, you know, look at the driveway and figure out where their property line begins and ends. And when you have 20 houses like that, it's really hard to tell. Wow. Wow. So I want to ask you before we go about you guys have done a lot of work on the the effort to identify all the bodies. A lot of them were terribly burned, people that were stuck in their cars, that were trapped in their homes. And they have identified, correct, 84 out of 85 people. Who is, um, who is this last person? This last person is a complete mystery right now. You know, it's it's a really impressive feat that they got 84 people identified so quickly, but the last person is defying all of their efforts just because, you know, they have this guy. All they really know is that he was a grown man and he had some teeth fillings, but no one has been reported missing that meets that description. There was no car found nearby. There was no evidence that he was in town visiting. They just have no clue where to start. There's a thought that he might be a migrant worker. Exactly. And runs into a house. So here's the other thing. He was found in the home of a very sick, very religious married woman. And the theory is that maybe he knew that she was disabled and had run in to try and help her in this very selfless and heroic act. And just, At like 6 a.m. or something. Yeah, like it that, was right? like 7 a.m. very, very soon after the fire started. And he never made it out. But of course, now her poor husband, who survived the fire because he had left for work around 3 a.m., has gotten kind of sucked into this story of, you know, who was this man? And he doesn't know. And he thinks his wife, Ellen Walker, um, who's one of the victims, he thinks she doesn't know. And it's just this big mystery. Like, who is victim number 85? Wow. But he might have he may have been a a hero or at least attempting to to save this woman. And. I mean, all accounts are pointing in that direction, but in a way, I think we'll never really know. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Lizzie Johnson, Gabrielle Lurie, thanks for coming in. You're very welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks to my guests today on Fifth and Mission, reporter Lizzie Johnson and photographer Gabrielle Lurie. Thanks to King Kaufman and Karen Creighton for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. 